Hello everyone, uh, this is Caden. Welcome to another episode of Happy Hour History. If you don't listen to this podcast normally, it is a comedy history podcast where normally I would sit with a friend and drink and I would teach them a lesson in some kind of historical topic that I think would interest them. Uh, today is actually a bit of an anomaly in terms of what this episode's content will be because instead of me sitting down and teaching a lesson to someone else, I have actually found somebody who is infinitely smarter than I am and have let them do all the work. Um, so that's been actually really nice for me. Um, so I have a special guest today uh, that I've actually Skype called in. His name is Cameron Zinsu. He is um, a PhD candidate from uh, Mississippi State University. So uh, like I said, definitely knows his stuff far better than I ever could. Um, and he is here to teach me about Operation Anvil slash Dragoon. Uh, which was an Allied invasion in uh, the Second World War, 1944. Um, if you're listening to this on the specific day that it goes out um, to the public, it will actually be the 75th anniversary of this uh, invasion taking place. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't get it out early. Uh, we just recently recorded it, so... Um, if you happen to listen to this on release day, then congratulations, you are on the 75th anniversary. Um, if not, and you're listening to this in the future, um, also still a good episode, I don't know. Um, you'll enjoy uh, the kind of the conversation that we had. I have to say that you'll hear in the podcast, I actually tell Cameron that I did no research into this beforehand. I wanted to go in knowing pretty much nothing the way that most of my guests go into um, an episode that I would teach them. So I really let him kind of teach me everything that there is to know about this invasion. Um, we had such a good time um, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. As usual, just so you're aware, um, there is a content and sort of just like general language warning. This one is actually quite mild. I didn't warn Cameron in advance that he was allowed to swear. Um, so it took quite a while for him to catch on despite the fact that I was swearing. Totally, uh, that's totally fine. But generally, um, this kind of is a bit ridiculous. We make a lot of uh, kind of teen girl references to explain the Stalin-FDR-Churchill relationship. Um, so this is not kind of the dry textbook history that maybe you want. Um, this is sort of a bit ridiculous and we had a really good time doing it. So I hope you enjoy the episode and as usual, sorry mom, uh, but enjoy. Um, this won't be part of anything. So this is just me saying hello. <laughs> okay. And I'm really glad that you uh, you wanted to be on this. Um, it's such a yeah. kind of interesting ability that I have running this stupid podcast that I have, um, that I can kind of have much smarter people like you on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this will be really fascinating. I have purposely looked into this not at all. Um, okay. 
so that you can teach me. I am slightly into a very low alcohol percentage drink, um, which I started in preparation for this. Um, I, I also started in preparation for this. Perfect. Okay. Good. So I'm from Texas, uh, and I got my bachelor's and master's at the University of North Texas. And I've been, since 2013, I've been doing my PhD. Okay. Um, and I spent a year in France, living in France a couple years ago to do my research. Uh, chapter four of six, finishing up the dissertation. How, how long is it? Like, give me the word count. Like, how long is it meant to be? Well, it's going to be between 250 and 300 pages. Oh, um, gosh. And That's I have so about, much. I have 490, like 130 pages right now. That's incredible. So I'm... Yeah, you know, it's just just slogging away at that. It's funny. I'm a I'm I've written two articles. One is for War on the Rocks, and another one's an op-ed for the New York Times. New York Times about this operation too, because it's 75th anniversary in two days. So I was like, I'm gonna do a media blitz all across the internet. I'm gonna get out <laughs> as much as I can, because I really like this operation. I feel pretty passionately about it too. Um, and it's not the subject of my dissertation, but it was the subject of my master's. And so, yeah. so something I'm, you care a lot about, you know a lot about. Yeah, I'm, I'm very fond of it. And, it, you know, it takes up a chapter in my dissertation, but it's not the central topic. And I guess quickly, my dissertation, it's um, I study civil military relations in the southern French town of Montelimar during World War II. Um, and pretty much I argue that you can't understand civilian experience in France. If you just look at the German occupation between 40 and 44, you need to bookend it with 39 to 45. And it's only in that way that you can actually understand what civilians went through. Because then you understand that like their hardships weren't just German creations. They were also French and then American and allied creations as well. Uh, it's so it's that's, that's what I do. That's really yeah. fascinating. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And, you know, it's like at a very base level, if you only look at the German occupation, you're missing two years of World War II. So, like, <laughs> you know, you're not even covering the entire war. And so yeah. at the, the very base, I was like, oh, let's look at the entire war in, in this here location. Well, so, interesting. Um, yeah. So that's that's really fascinating. Um, I had to actually reread your initial email to me to remember what you'd even proposed. Because like, I know it's <laughs> World War II. I know it's an operation. Um, you said it was uh, Anvil slash Dragoon, which I assume mm -hmm. is two different things, not the same it's, thing? No, it's the same thing. Okay, so it's one thing with two names. Yeah, it's it's part of the – yeah. Um, and how actually it changed names is actually something that's really funny. Uh on August 1st, just two weeks before the operation started, Churchill said, well, the Allied High Command, they're like, well, you know, we're, we're afraid that the Germans might have uncovered what this operation's about. So why don't we change the name? Because this anvil, the operational name, has been in use this whole time. And it's an apocryphal tale, so we don't know it's true. I've never found any evidence that this actually happened. But apparently Churchill is the one who personally had to change to Dragoon because he felt like he was dragooned into the operation. Oh. Yeah. yeah. It's so, it's, <laughs> I like it's his so, idea of just being like, if we just change the name, they won't know it's the same thing. <laughs> It'll be completely different. They'll be like, what's this Operation Dragoon? We've never heard of that one. We're not prepared. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's crazy because, you know, the Allies, they conducted this huge kind of, you know, deception operation throughout the war where they had they created like fictional armies all the time. 
that they said like, oh, well, this fictional army is going to do all this. And, you know, they even like blew up fake tanks. Yeah. Like hot air balloon tanks, like in preparation for the uh, Normandy invasions, you know, to create a, the appearance of an entirely new army. So I guess it stands to reason that it might have worked, but actually German intelligence was like, no, no, no. We know they're going to land in southern France. We just don't know exactly where or exactly when, but we have a pretty good idea it's going to be in the sometime in August of 1944. Sure. So the 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 rename wasn't actually that successful. No, it wasn't. Not for what um, they're trying to do anyway. And it's only served to confuse the public and historians for decades since. Well, there you go. I was already confused. <laughs> I cannot stress enough how little I researched this, which was not at all. So you've already shocked me once. Oh, oh, you're shocked. Oh goodness. I've already, I've already been duped by this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, so yeah. Well, however you want to start, take me through it. I'm very interested. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, Operation Anvil was the Allied invasion of southern France in August 1944. It's 75th anniversary. It's coming up in two days. Uh, and I guess briefly how I got into the topic is that when I first began my master's program in North Texas, I took World War II class with Robert Satino, and he assigned us a book, A War to Be Won, and he said, okay, read this book and then find something in it over the course of the next week and then come back with ideas next week. I was like, cool, cool, cool. So what happened was, as I started perusing through the book and I saw this map of Europe, and it was like all the major allied operations that happened in Western Europe. And I was like, oh yeah, I know about this one, I know about this one, I know about this one. And then I saw this arrow coming up through southern France. I thought, what the hell is this? <laughs> Where does this come from and how come I've never heard of this? And it turned out it's Operation Anvil. So I look in, <laughs> I look inside the book for more information, and there's just like three sentences on it in a like 700-page book that's supposed to cover operations in world war ii yeah. and it just says that it, it <laughs> the best part is is that it's subsumed in another paragraph about the liberation of paris okay so it's so, not even really about that to be honest yeah and it was just like <laughs> bookended at the end of a chapter um also thought, also this happened yeah no, we're not, not going to explain happens. what or why it's just it happened sort of whatever no, it's uh, like here's the actual quote. It says, "As this drive towards Paris began, Allied air, sea, and land forces launched Operation Dragoon, landing 94,000 men and 11,000 vehicles between Toulon and Caen on the Mediterranean coast of France in a single day. Within 24 hours, these troops had pushed nearly 20 miles inland. That day in Paris, amid the excitement of the news of this fresh landing, the city's police force force throw a reluctant arm of German civic control agreed to put aside its uniforms, keep its arms, and join the active resistance on the streets. <laughs> it, it, it's a, this operation occurs in the context of the liberation of Paris. While important, right? Like this operation put a ton of people. And so that was the outgrowth of my thesis that I later wrote, um, and where I get a lot of the information for today's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens is that in like, say, May 1943, the Allies are beating up on the Germans in North Africa, and they kick Rommel out of North Africa once and for all. And essentially, the Allies have to decide, oh, well, what the hell are we going to do next? Well, the obvious thing is to go from Tunisia to Sicily, because it's a short trip. 
Yeah. And then from Sicily, you're going to probably go into Italy because it's right there. But that going into Italy doesn't really do anything. You can't threaten Berlin from Italy because you have to cross the Alps. Um, and really, you got a whole Hannibal situation going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a reverse Hannibal situation. <laughs> and it's actually much easier to start in the north of Italy and to go south than to go start in the south of Italy and go up. Okay. Um, but that's exactly what the Allies were doing. <laughs> um, and so I'm like, well, what are we going to do? They're like, oh, wait, wait. well, first let's get rid of Sicily and Italy. So the Allies do that. They launch Operation Husky in July of 1943, take over Sicily really quickly. And then in September 1943, they start Operation Avalanche and land at Salerno. And it's and, and Operation Baytown. There's other also another operation in there from the British called Operation Slapstick. Um, and so I always wonder, you know, what it's like to, if you were the mother of a soldier who was killed in Operation Slapstick. <laughs> that right? is a bit of a slap in the face, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, it, it gets to the point where you're like, I have to laugh because otherwise I will just cry. So cry. we're just going to laugh about this. Slapstick, it's fine. Yeah, angry break things. You know, like, oh, you know, Private Johnny Smith was killed in Operation Slapstick. Oh, great. My son's joke is literally a joke to you. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, the Allies invade Italy, and they, they start going up Italy. But then pretty soon they get bogged down because Italy's a pretty hilly and mountainous place. So it's very defensible from the German perspective. Um, the Italians surrender and actually switch sides. So technically from... September 1943 to the end of the war, Italy is an allied partner, and the Allies are fighting to liberate Italy, not conquer or overtake it like they're trying to do to Germany. <laughs> and their stalemate quickly happens, and they're like, oh no, what are we going to do? Like, well, well, we decided a few months ago we're going to meet with this guy named Stalin, you know, that, that Soviet dictator guy who uh, has starved millions of his own citizens and purged his own officer corps, which contributed. You know. <laughs> yeah, that guy. <laughs> which contributed to like rapid German advances in 1941 because all of a sudden all of his experienced generals were dead and there was just a bunch of new guys like, oh, oh no, and the entire German army is descending upon us. Whatever shall we do? <laughs> so, but by 1943, um, things had stabilized and even reversed in the Eastern Front. Uh, the Battle of Stalingrad had happened um, in late 1942, early 1943. Uh, and a lot of people say that's the turning point in the war. Or that's a debatable and a very niche kind of World War II historian debating point. Um, but suffice to say, momentum had indefinitely turned towards the Allies uh, after the Battle of Stalingrad. Um, that summer, the Battle of Kursk had also happened, which was like the last major German offensive in the Eastern Front. Uh, and so the Soviets are riding high. Um, they're like, oh, well, what are we going to do for 1944? Well, yeah, let's, you know, go away for like a weekend trip in Tehran and uh, <laughs> hammer these things out. So that's exactly what happens. Let's just go have a boys weekend. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, guys. <laughs> We're going to go hang out with all of our best friends. And I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's, it's pretty much a who's who of like the top allied minds you could think of. So, like, you have Winston Churchill, you have Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you have Eisenhower, um, you know, you have input from people like George C. Marshall, you have Stalin, you have uh, Stalin's aides, 
And there's just this conglomeration of brilliant military minds for the Allies. And it's the first of two or three times. I can't remember if it's twice or three times that they all get together. Stalin meets with Churchill and then either FDR or Truman. So three times. It happens three times. It happens. Because they meet what? The ones I think I know are always Potsdam and Yalta. Are those not the same thing? No, they're two different ones. Well, no, like, uh, but do, are they the same thing as what you were talking about? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there are three. The first one happens in Tehran while the war. Okay. Going. Yes. And we have Yalta, and then the last one is Potsdam. Okay. Those. I feel like those three things have been like driven into my head so many times through like various history courses. Like you must remember those cities, and so for some <laughs> reason they're like always somewhere in my brain, like only accessible in very rare occasions. And I have to like Sweet. really dig back there. Yeah. <laughs> just little sign points it's like I've, I've wasted brain space like there's something much more important in my life that could have been in that spot and instead it's those three places well i mean you know if there's ever world war ii trivia at your local pub that's true is... i'm oh, awful at pub quiz but if they were asking these questions i'd be so much better wait how are you awful at pub quiz i'm awful at pub. they ask the weirdest questions we get asked questions about like what happened in like who won like the I don't know, random sport in this Olympic like 50 years ago. And then you have all of these old people who know the answer. And I'm like, I don't know what happened 50 years ago at the Olympics. Who who won the first speed knitting Olympic <laughs> event in 1960? I'm like, I'm like shit, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, I am really bad at pub quiz. I think we've never come higher than like third to last. So, what? but we... We usually get, like, extra points for a funny team name, and then sometimes they feel bad for you if you come in last place, so you get, like, a prize anyway, like a little consolation. Mm. One time we came in second, but it was only against one other team, so in fairness, we still lost. <laughs> so you were second and last. Yeah, so it was, that was a really good day. Um, the other team bought us wine just because they were like, we couldn't have played otherwise, so you guys are actually <laughs> the real MVPs. <laughs> Anyways, I've totally taken us off topic. Pub quizzes are amazing. Everyone should try one, but you're going to be bad. Unless you have random ass World War II trivia questions to yeah, pose. Unless, unless you find the best like pub or bar to go to, in which case maybe you just get really good questions. We always get shit questions. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways, I've digressed this conversation. So we're back in Tehran. Yeah, so everyone everyone gets to Tehran and they're like, hey, hey, nice to meet you. What's up, you communist prick? And Stalin's <laughs> like, hello, you capitalist pigs. Let's hold hands and come together and figure out what we're gonna do for nineteen. Common enemy situation, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, at least we can all agree that Hitler's the worst. <laughs> um, and so there's this idea like, okay, well. We know that the Normandy invasion is going to happen sometime next year. But we also know that we're currently in Italy and not making very much progress. And Churchill has this really big hard-on about capturing Rome. He's like, oh my god, guys, if we capture Rome, it'll just be the best. Every, it's every... the eternal city, guys. <laughs> we have to have it. Dude, eternal? It's like an all-night, all-day party. <laughs> it's a party that never ends if we get to Rome. Guys, I do you understand? Gladiators. Just just <laughs> that's enough. Just gladiators. I've always wanted to put on the Pope's hat. <laughs> we have to save the Pope, guys. This isn't fair. Yeah. 
Exactly. So, yeah, so that's what he wants. Yeah, he even says, you know, whoever holds Rome holds, quote, the title deeds to Italy, is what he said. I'm like, all right. I didn't all right. know that was that important, but okay. Well, it was it was an important it was important politically. Like yeah. it was a sim- more it was more symbolic than like a strategic. show of power. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, hey, we've knocked out one of the three Axis powers. Like sure. the first Axis capital will be in our hands. So th- there's not insignificant political significance to that happening. Yeah. However, from a strictly like military operational military point of view, capturing Rome didn't have much that much value. And indeed, a lot of people argued at the time and subsequently that. The Rome campaign in general didn't have that much value overall. Hmm. But so they're all sitting in a circle around the campfire, you know, <laughs> kumbaya, they all made s'mores. Um, made friendship bracelets. <laughs> they made friendship bracelets. But the one, they, the one for Stalin, they were they gave it to him and they were like behind the, by his back. They were like, not, <laughs> not. Friend. Actually, what's really interesting is that at this conference, Roosevelt and Stalin actually hit it off. Pretty Did they get well. on pretty well? Yeah, to to like the chagrin of Churchill. Churchill feels really left out. Oh. Um, I, I, even at one point, Stalin and Roosevelt go off and have their own meeting without Churchill, and Churchill just feels like you know like the he just feels like you know it's a private club and that he's not invited to, even though this he's is like, like the saddest meeting of middle school girls ever. Pretty well, much. And Churchill, I, I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> we have all been there. Not so, with Colin, but that's okay. As he's wont to do, Churchill drinks a lot. He drinks so much all the time, every day. So I feel like he'd be really good at this podcast. He, he would be an excellent guest host. These are facts. <laughs> These are facts. Uh, and so... But they get together and they say, okay, what are we going to do? Stalin's like, all right, hit me, hit me with your best shot. So American and British planners prior to arriving in Tehran had actually stopped off in Cairo. And they're like, hey, we should uh, kind of go in there with like a team game plan so we can present Stalin with this unified front. However, it became pretty evident pretty quickly that they weren't unified on much. Mm-hmm. So the British were like, so most of the British fighting manpower at this point was tied up in Italy. Like, most, most of the British soldiers that were fighting, they were fighting in Italy. And Americans were like, yeah, I mean, we got soldiers there too, but uh, really, you know, we need to prepare for invading France because, you know, we're going to be carrying you people into this because, I don't know, you guys have run out of men, money, material, and we have to kind of fund the rest of the war for you Brits. I mean, they did show up late with Starbucks, like, hey guys, what's up? So, you know, in fairness... Yeah, but they showed up with the Venti, right? And they're like, well, yeah. we brought seconds and thirds just in case you guys are extra we, thirsty. Yeah, extra we, just, we just brought extra for you guys. And we brought some for Stalin, too. <laughs> in fact, we brought some for anyone who wants to fight with us. So, true squad goals. <laughs> yeah. He's like, we really need to get into the Balkans. We need to get into the Balkans. We need to, like, stay in the Mediterranean. Because the the key to the British Empire had been... The ability to make travel occur as quickly as possible between like India and Great Britain. And if, you know, the Suez Canal isn't available or if there's threatened shipping in the Mediterranean, all of a sudden, you know, there's always the fear that British shipping has to then go all the way around to Africa rather than cut through the Suez Canal. And so Churchill and the British had this really like strong 
idea that like, hey, let's like pursue Mediterranean operations. They also said it was a soft underbelly that, you know, it'd be easier to, you know, the Brits pretty much because they had to conserve manpower said, hey, okay, we'll take operations and opportunities as they arise. Uh, but we don't really like having like hard nailed down plans because there's always the possibility we might not be able to meet them. But then the Americans show up and like, hey, we're bringing over tens of millions of guys and tens of millions of ships and materials and tons and bombs and planes. And, you know, he was, the Americans showed up in World War II and were essentially like Oprah. You get a car and you get a car and you get a car. <laughs> I just... love I love the, the Oprah energy, but I also strongly feel that I am the British. Like, you can make plans and, like, I'll tentatively agree. But, like, you know, sometime of the day, you're like, I'm just really not feeling it. Maybe next time. Uh, something so. came on. I got to Netflix and chill with myself. Yeah, I have to be alone tonight. I I have to really reconnect with me, so... So yeah, I I actually can feel the kind of the British sympathy there. <laughs> so the so that's what the British say. The Americans are like, actually, we think like the, an operation through southern France would be a good idea because it would be used to augment the um, forces that would go in through Normandy and through Operation Overlord. And so, what do you think, Stalin? And so it's kind of like, I don't know. Stalin's there and he's like weighing these two decisions. It's almost like he's the like, bachelor. Who, who am I going to side with? Yeah, who gets the rose? Yeah, yeah, who gets the rose? And and Churchill's like, please, please, please. He's like, well, I was already stiffed at lunch by Joseph and him and Franklin went off and they had their own little shindig. But you know what? That's I'm, it's okay. I'm w- way more personable than Franklin. I, I still feel confident that he's going to choose me in the rose ceremony. So. Mm-hmm. And then, no, lo and behold, Stalin gives FDR and the Americans the rose. And he says, no, I favor an operation through southern France in conjunction with Operation Overlord because we found on the eastern front that when we hit the Germans from multiple directions at the same time, they have much more difficulty in responding to our attacks. And he also said that of the Italian operations, he was like, I don't think those are going to go anywhere. Those will just lead to a dead end, which is largely the American view as well. Um, and there's you know, some contention after the war. It's like, is Stalin saying that so that he could have the Balkans to himself? Um, and Churchill will contend in his post-war histories of World War II. He's like, well, because we did Operation Anvil Dragoon, that means that you know, we ceded the Balkans to Stalin. Thankfully, you know, Tito set up an independent communist state in Yugoslavia largely free of Soviet influence, but I digress a bit. <laughs> um, and so essentially what happens over the course of the next couple of days is that the allies, the three allies, they come to this agreement that, yeah, we'll have Operation Anvil. The British are like, yeah, okay, yeah, we can, we, we can live with it. It'll be fine. And Stalin's like, yeah, I really like this idea. And Eisenhower is like, who is going to end up leading uh, Overlord? He's like, yeah, I like this idea. And FDR is like, yeah, I like this idea. And so they all depart from Tehran, you know, handshakes like, oh, my God, you know, keep in touch always, you know, same time next year. (laughs) Best friends forever. Best friends forever. And they decide to go with Overlord and anvil and the russians are going to launch an independent operation sometime in 1944 around the summer of 1944 around the same time as 
the Western Allies, and that's going to end up being Operation Bagration, which is uh, the Soviet operation in Belarus, modern-day Belarus, um, against German Army Group Center. So all these, all three of these things happen within three months of each other in 1944. Oh, wow. Chaos. Yeah. <laughs> so the. The Brits and the Americans go back to Cairo and like, oh my gosh, guys, let's debrief. It's like the bus ride home from camp with your best friend, you know? Like, oh my God, what exciting uh, things did you do, Brittany? <laughs> I don't know why, but like that is a visceral picture to me. <laughs> I mean, we've so all had summer tell camp. Tell me everything you did. Did you talk to any boys? Like, give me all the deets. Yeah, did I can. <laughs> did you kiss? You, you need to give it, was there tongue involved? Like, I can absolutely picture this entire conversation. And it's frightening. <laughs> Anyways. So, yeah, they get back, and eventually they decide on, like, um, a couple main points. And essentially, they're about Operation Overlord and Operation Anvil. In fact, Roosevelt summed this up in two points. He says, A, nothing should be done to hinder Overlord, and B, nothing should be done to hinder Anvil. And then the combined chiefs of staff, which was the American and the British chiefs of staff, but put together. Sure. So combined <laughs> chiefs of staff. <laughs> they, and they said that Overlord and Anvil were going to be the supreme operations of 1944. They must be carried out during May 1944. Nothing must be undertaken which hazards the success of these two operations. And so... In the minds of the Americans, they're like, okay, cool. We've got our strategic plans for the rest for 1944, at least the first half of 1944. And like, it's in the Outlook calendar. I've <laughs> sent out the invites. Nobody better forget. Like, show up prepared. And, yeah. That's right. We've got notifications a day in advance. <laughs> it's in your iPhone calendar. I know you see the dot. Guys, we're going on this vacation, so you need to start saving for it now. <laughs> I don't want to hear six weeks from the vacation that all of a sudden you didn't save up enough because I've already rented the hotel room and it's accommodating six of us. <laughs> so it wouldn't be fair to the rest of us if all of a sudden you had to drop it up because you didn't have to say. We, we put down up. that down, uh, that deposit and you're not getting it back, so you better be in. We're not paying your part. <laughs> mm-hmm, girl. <laughs> so... That's what the Americans thought. They're like, okay, so we've got this, and then we're going to do this. And the British are like, yeah, we're going to do this. It's probably going to happen, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, life happens. <laughs> Shit happens, right, guys? Yeah, I actually said maybe to the Outlook calendar invite, so I I was never really committed. Yeah. Uh, so, didn't you get the response? Like, it should have sent a couple weeks ago. I still got my eyes on Cabo, guys, so... <laughs> I mean, would you guys be up to, like, switch to Cabo at the last minute, maybe? <laughs> so, so the, so, and then the Soviets, too, they're like, okay, cool, like, these are the operations that are going to happen. But then, there's um the issue of Italy still. Like, okay, so they say they're going to, it's going to happen in May 1944, but that still means that it's five months, and they're still fighting in Italy during that time. And there's frustratingly little progress being made. There are high casualties, a lot of really ill-advised attacks that kill a lot of Allied soldiers. Um, so Churchill, essentially, is the driver behind this idea. He says, like, hey, guys, why don't we just do, like, an impromptu vacation and, like, just invade behind the German lines? Like, maybe 
I don't know, 100 miles behind where they are, and we'll invade there, cut them off, and then they'll be forced to retreat, and then we'll capture Rome, and everything will be happy, and we'll be in the North Italian plains by the end of February. <laughs> Sound great, guys? And America's like, I mean, I don't know. Like, that would kind of, like... We kind of got things in the diary. Yeah, we got we got things in the diary, and, like, we have an extensive logistical, like, chain that we have to adhere to because we got a lot of moving parts. And so you can't just really disrupt them all the time uh, because then that'll affect everything else. And the Brits are like, no, 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 you don't get it. If we do this operation, it's going to work. And it's going to work fabulously. Like, you don't get it. You just what don't. What could go wrong? Can't yeah. you see our vision? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but Trish is like, yeah, 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 we should do this. And the American's like, mm, okay, yeah, sure. Why not? So, okay. what becomes Operation Shingle occurs in January 1940. It ended up becoming a disease uh, for the Allies. It well, happened at Anzio, behind German lines, and it was designed to rupture the German lines so that there, a rapid like war of movement could then emerge in Italy, and the Allies could hopefully push the Germans back out of Italy entirely and free up some Allied forces to plug into operations elsewhere. <laughs> but it was planned in three weeks, whereas like Overlord had been planned for a year, two years in advance. Right? Anvil had been at least in the ideas of Allied planners for six months already at this point. There was already um, a planning group, uh, Task Force 163, which was like making up specific details for Operation Anvil, right? Like a successful amphibious operation requires months of planning and training. Uh, the Allies suffered disastrously at Salerno uh, when they in the first invasion of Italy, but you know they were relying on the element of surprise, and so they done did it. <laughs> and uh, are you surprised? Like, yeah, surprise! So it was like the first week, like things went well, but then the Germans were like, oh no, they didn't, and they absolutely just like hammered began hammering the allies and almost pushed them back into the sea at the Anzio bridgehead yeah oh fight it was Poseidon disaster. just fight Poseidon yeah they got within a mile of uh the beach where the allies were like the allies were f firing artillery from the beach into the position German positions in order to stop them from overrunning the beachhead and so essentially what happened is that what was designed to just like last a couple weeks two or three weeks so that until they could link up with the other main allied body turns into like this marooned force that has to be continually supplied and so because of that all of a sudden supplies that were supposed to be going to anvil and overlord are all of a sudden going to italy and churchill's like oops well we got stuck i guess that means we have to cancel anvil because we have to have overlord and so it's just going to get squeezed sure. out because we need these supplies for italy and the americans are like hold on now we've already put down our deposit <laughs> like we're like like girl ashley get it together the down payment is on my credit card. I'm not <laughs> getting that exactly back. Right. <laughs> exactly right. Like, uh, there's always a Karen or a Susan in the group. It just has to ruin it for everyone. Written's the Karen of the group. Mm. Sorry, Karens, but you know, you know who you are. 
<laughs> and so, in the March, like this is two months later after the Allies are in Italy. It's March, and they're still stuck. And like by this point, it's like okay, we might have to even delay Overlord. And like, no, that's completely unacceptable. Um, but I mean, Anvil, like we would really like it, but. Mm, Guess it can't happen. I mean, we got priorities here. Don't don't you see those guys in Italy? They just they need our help, guys. Yeah, and so because like essentially the Allies, Americans didn't have a choice. They had to cancel. They had to cancel Anvil because like there just weren't enough supplies, and the soldiers that were gonna train and fight for Anvil were still fighting in Italy. Um. I don't just... know. I don't know why, but I imagine like when you go on Facebook and people make their dogs hold signs that like shame them for like eating things. I just imagine like Britain having to hold a sign being like, "Sorry that we like led a invasion that we weren't prepared for, and now we're stuck in Italy." <laughs> just like, just like, please shame us. Right, essentially. <laughs> and then. Yeah, so Eisenhower ends up saying, like, the arguments pro and con on prospects of Anvil versus efficiency in our own loading programs are getting a bit wearing. So there's this really stupid technical thing that, like, was involved with all these operations called landing ship tanks. And essentially, they're, like, the big ships that carried the tanks and, like, major supplies. And there were a shortage of them in 1944 for the Allies. And so in order to like successfully carry out these amphibious operations, you needed to have a bunch of these landing ship tanks. Well, the ones that were being diverted for Overlord and Anvil were instead being used in Italy. And all of a sudden there was a danger of like running short of shipping essentially. Um, and so that's the biggest reason why Anvil um, in March of 1944 got canceled. Oh, wow. So it's like yeah. your Amazon package can't get to you fast enough. So now you have to cancel your entire operation. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, that, you know, if you're trying to play a game of basketball and the basketball hoop doesn't arrive because the truck, yeah. you, like, broke down or if your the Amazon truck has too many other deliveries to went make. to the wrong place. Yeah, yeah, pretty he much. He tried to leave it yesterday and you were in, but he thought you weren't, so he took it back and now you have to go <laughs> to the post office and pick it up yourself. There's not going to be a basketball game today. Yeah, essentially, and it just pisses off everyone involved, right? Especially when the Soviets show up, they're like, hey, guys, we're ready to play basketball. And, like, Stalin in his basketball shorts and knee-high socks. Oh, no. (laughs) His basketball jersey. I mean, maybe young Stalin. Yo. Young Stalin? Yo, that dude dude had it. Good-looking guy. Like, terrible human being, good-looking guy. You know, it's... He had it. That dude was definitely part of like hipster magazine back in the day yes it's always the, it's always the prettiest ones that are the worst that's how you know it's true so, it's true so you know mass murder but it's fine <laughs> that boy fine <laughs> but he's there in his basketball shorts he's ready for the game unfortunately they're not ready to have a game no not at all it's because the the brits ordered like, oh, well, we want to get some wickets for the cricket game next week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, the there's this, like, summation, and the allies say, like, if we cancel Anvil completely, the following will be true. A, we will get into political difficulties with the French. B, Overlord will lose at least 10 fighting divisions. Um, 
C doesn't matter. D, our divisions and the French divisions will be committed to a costly, unremunerative, inching advance in Italy. The people of both the United States and France may or may not take this indefinitely. E, once committed to Italy, we have our forces pointed towards southeastern Europe and will have the greatest difficulty in preventing their use for occupation forces in Austria, Hungary, and southern Germany. And so in addition to just like, like not having the forces on hand to fight the Germans, there are all these other political calculations that were at hand um, that would be severely impacted if Anvil didn't go forward. Because part of the Anvil invading force was going to be comprised of a French army. Um, and it would be a French army liberating French territory. So having this operation for the Free French, de Gaulle and his supporters in London, was hugely important to them. Um, and the Americans said, like, yeah, the French aren't going to be happy with this. And it's going to adversely affect Overlord, which we all know we absolutely need to have. Um, and so, but, like, it's pretty much a fait accompli. There, there's nothing they can do about it because there just isn't enough shipping available to fund the Anvil operation. And so it gets canceled and it's permanently removed from the docket. However, there are a couple scheming Americans behind the scenes up to no There game. always are. Yeah, there are. Just imagine them like like tapping their fingers together ominously, like, mmm. Oh, you think we're finished. <laughs> <laughs> Au contraire. <laughs> so uh, General Jacob Devers, who is the deputy supreme commander in the Mediterranean for the Allies. He keeps the task force I was talking about, Task Force 163, he keeps it alive. And he says, like, well, the operation's canceled, but I still want you guys to work as though it's not canceled. And so let me know, like, our requirements. And uh, as he could, he would siphon off supplies destined for other locations and, like, put them in stockpiling depots in Corsica. And he's like, <laughs> we may have use of these yet. And so that's one thing. And then the other thing is that the Americans were pretty pissed off that it was canceled. They're like, no, we still really want Anvil. And by this point, Eisenhower had been appointed Supreme Allied Commander. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. I definitely want my Anvil. Like, I super <laughs> want this. We're not, we're not done with that. That's not, that's not cut. Yeah. And so, like, it's, it, so it's canceled, but they're still like, hmm. It's gonna like we would like to. I love the idea that they're like, "Hey, you're canceled," and they're like, "But what if we weren't?" Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but what if? It's exactly right. It's sort of the uh, better to uh, to beg forgiveness than ask permission. They're like, "Yeah, but we what if we just keep it going? Who who's gonna stop us?" Well, Churchill. And yeah, that's who will stop you. <laughs> and he's still vehemently against this. You know, and he gets, like, increasing, like, as, all, I have so many great quotes that he just, like, says from these things. He, like, in April, he says, like, when they're, like, hey, some of his commanders are, like, hey, um, so, the Americans have been talking about Anvil. And Churchill's, like, well, what are we going to do? Say, halt here, go over to the defensive, all aboard for Anvil? You know, <laughs> And he releases a series of uh, documents to the British Chiefs of Staffs and his aides. Like, this is how we should frame it. We should frame that, like, well, you know, we're just trying to, like, take things as they come. And, like, pretty, anyways, like, 
if we go forward with Anvil, it's going to end in a disaster anyways, just like the Italy operations have. Um, but so it's like these ticky tacky arguments until uh, Operation Overlord happens on June 6th, 1944. Um, and the Allies land and they land successfully, but they pretty quickly get bogged down in Hedgerow Country, what's known as Hedgerow Country in Normandy. Um, and it's like these, I don't know if you've ever been to Normandy, there's huge, like nine foot tall hedgerows separate farmland. And each one of them is just like a perfect defensive fighting position for the Germans. And so the allies have to like carve out hedgerow by hedgerow, like one at a time. And there are hundreds, even thousands of these in Normandy, like dividing various farmland. Um, and so it's very slow going for the allies for the first six weeks they land. But with the landing in Normandy, um, and the Allied capture of Rome. So what ha happened was, is that there was a major operation in May 1944 in Italy, and that finally succeeded in dislodging the Germans in Italy, and they started getting pushed back. And so that by mid-May, the main forces of Italy had connected with the, uh, like, I guess almost ulcer at Anzio that had just been like, their festering that they had been needing to supply since January. But they link up with the main forces, all this, and they're all together, happy kumbaya. And on June 5th, the Allies capture Rome. On June 6th, the Allies land in Normandy. And then. We got the Pope. We're in Normandy, like riding high. We got this hat. <laughs> we'll put it on. I'm going to put the hat on. I'm just going to test it. Don't tell anyone. I'm going to go to Donatella's and get some pizza. going to throw a coin into the Trevi Fountain. That means I'm going to come back another time. It's fine. We're, we got to hit all the tourist stops. Exactly. <laughs> and so, but now all of a sudden, these arguments that like the British had been making, like, oh, well, we need to capture Rome. Well, like, now you have Rome. Or, you know, what about Overlord? Well, Overlord's happened. Like, all of a sudden, there's now enough supplies available um, and enough troops available to like, oh my gosh, guys, we can totally do another operation, like another amphibious <laughs> operation. And the Americans like, funny you should say that. It just so happens we've been preparing for, I don't know, Operation Anvil, this thing we agreed to back in November. I imagine they're like, hey, we, we could do another one of these, I guess. And then America like slaps down the binder with like <laughs> all of the color coded tabs being like, funny you should say that because we've got some stuff here for you to look at. Oh, 100%. <laughs> and that's essentially what happens. And they're like, hey, Task Force 163, we need your plan. And they're like, we got you. And they just walk into the room. They present this flawless, you know, kind of detailed plan. Like, okay, this is exactly how it would work. We just threw this together last minute. No problem. <laughs> you know, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And so... The British chiefs of staff in Churchill are like, no, 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 we can't do this. But Eisenhower's like, oh, girl, we totally got this. Like, Karen, the deposit's on my credit card. Everyone else says they're coming. Stop trying to convince everyone else to go to Cabo. We already rebooked. We're doing it. We tried to change our plans for you, and now we're committed. So you can join us, but we're, we're committed. Absolutely. And, you know... On June 26th, Eisenhower says to the Combined Chiefs of Staff, I will entail certain sacrifices to Overlord, but these will gladly 
be made because we are convinced of the transcendent Im- transcendent importance of Anvil. And, the, and, he, <laughs> and he says that the arguments from the British Chiefs of Staff were not logical and appear out of keeping with the existing military situation and requirements. <laughs> so it's just like a low-key slapdown. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> And the American Joint Chiefs of Staff, the American planning body, called the British trying to they, – they thought it was like haggling. Like, hey, can we argue down to a lower price? <laughs> I'll sell you this car for $10,000. Well, will you take 7000 No, $10,000 seems right. We've already agreed that it was going to be $10,000. Yeah, 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 but I mean, but 7000 right? Yeah, what if, what if we just knocked it down a little? It's fine. But you've already signed on right here. We have a third party that was here to the agreement that we signed. <laughs> $10,000. And so the JCS... But I have 7000 in cash right now. So... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So <laughs> my parents were... My parents, they live in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, they said... That, and our neighbors, they keep getting these phone calls from people from California who are offering to buy their houses. Oh. And they said... We'll give you $67,000 in cash right now. And they're like, first of all, where did you get my number? And second of all, if you ever contact me again, I'm contacting the attorney general. <laughs> my house is easily worth four times what you're offering. But you said it's cash in hand. So I don't think you're, I don't think you're understanding what we're offering here. <laughs> it, it, it's essentially what it feels like the British were trying to do. And they call what the British were doing deplorable. Um, A word that has recently become relevant again. (laughs) But right, but like Churchill, he says something like, the more I thought about Anvil, the more bleak and sterile it appears. You know, it's like this is is just an increased partisan positions on both the Americans and the British towards this operation. Um. And like the British say, it would seem clear that even with great success, neither of these operations would directly influence the present battle in 1944. Talking about Anvil and the Battle of uh, Battle in Italy. And so, like, but essentially, the USA says, "Well, we have the supplies, we have the soldiers, we have everything we need for this operation. So we're gonna do it. Um, suck it up, girlfriend." Yeah, we're like basically knocking on France's front door, so we're kind of it's kind of, we're kind of here already. Might as well. Yeah, essentially. And um, oh my gosh, so this is where it gets really good. At the beginning of July, Church, like essentially the British felt like they were bent over, like we were made, like we were made to take this like we have to take this operation and we don't want it fly back and think of england and so churchill wrote to a a confidant he says i fully realize that we have to bend before the stronger power i realize all along how great campaigns and designs have been frustrated the question now is can we save from the wreck what can we save from it all our landing craft have been stolen for the tomfoolery of anvil where three months since they will be found sprawling in the suburbs of Marseille. I'm prepared to break with the Allied command in the Mediterranean and have it settled with the American sphere playing the fool at Anvil and the British sphere doing the best it can towards Trieste. 
Trieste being uh, over yonder in the Balkans. Sure. <laughs> over yonder. Mm -hmm. And he says, he then said, he's like, to the British chiefs of staff, he was like, we have to, you know, we can let them monopolize all the landing craft they can reach, but let us at least have a chance to launch a decisive strategic bloke with what is entirely British and under British command. I hope you realize that an intense impression must be made upon the Americans that we have been ill-treated and are furious. Do not let any smoothings or smirchings cover up this fact. After a little while, we shall get together again. But if we take everything lying down, there will be no end will be put upon us. The Arnold, King, and Marshall combination is one of the stupidest strategic teams ever seen. They are good fellows, and there is no need to tell them this. Honestly, what I am getting from this quote and your excellent reading of it is that um, Churchill is truly the most self-important person to have ever lived. Like, he just has this air of, like, everything he does is 30 times more important than anything you will ever say or do. <laughs> I mean, you know, and to be fair, when Brent, some people are like, hey, we should probably surrender or make peace with the Germans. Churchill, like, no, 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 we're going to get fighting. No, we're not doing No, no, <laughs> we got this. Um, you know, and he was, you know, universally popular in Great Britain. Um, I mean, until the war ends and then he's not. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, bye. <laughs> Thanks for your help. We don't need you, you drunk. It's, like it's like when someone helps you get like an A in class and then they think that you're like your friends and you're like, no, no. Th Thanks for your help. That was it. Um, excuse me. You, you want to go on a date? Oh, you, oh, you thought it you thought we had something. No, no, no. Yeah. You had intelligence. I had a need for your intelligence. <laughs> that's all this is. Oh, uh, and that's the saddest part of that is that we're probably the two nerds that like, like would have. That that's you know, that would have been <laughs> oh, us. Yeah. That would have been us in high school. Hey, girl, you pretty. <laughs> mm, I have a boyfriend. You were pretty smart when you got me that A. Hmm. <laughs> so yeah. So. See, it worked for so, him for a while. Right. And then, uh, so Arnold King and Marshall, um, Hap Arnold, uh, Ernest J. King, and George C. Marshall, they're the heads of the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army. So Churchill is just saying, like, this, like, he's pretty much like, the American High Strategic Command, it, they're a bunch of idiots. Um, but don't tell them, because uh, they're all right. We're like friends i guess yeah. or something so don't tell them i don't tell them i said that right you didn't hear it from me that's just a rumor guys you know how things happen in high school i would never talk about you behind your back I ever love you so much remember <laughs> how much fun we had at camp last year yeah. and so essentially how we can understand what happens overall um the british minister of production said it best he said many of our difficulties with the americans have arisen from their tendency to treat agreements on strategy as lawyers contracts and therefore regard them as binding irrespective of changing circumstances and i think it gets at this fundamental like difference um in the 1944 viewing the viewing of 1944 from the americans and the british americans are like right we have this logistical like train that's coming through the station that needs to run on time and we have like you can't just shift something right that's going to introduce all kinds of bottlenecks and unforeseen problems in our supply situation we haven't accounted for the brits is like 
I mean, yellow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, you know, and that's what the British had to do while they were fighting alone in the war. You know, from when France surrendered in June 1940 up through the Allied invasion of North Africa in, in November 1942. You know, that's two and a half years of the Brits essentially fighting the Germans in Europe by themselves. And so what they had to do is any opportunity they got to strike a blow at the Germans, they took it, um, regardless of where it was. Uh, but they didn't understand that the Americans have far more men, material, and they could like plan something and then just do it regardless of what's going on. Also, the Brits definitely had the upper hand in terms of the alliance in the first couple of years, like kind of showing the Americans the rope. Like, oh, you get on the block. Jeez, come, <laughs> come here, rookie. And, but by 1943, 1944, the Americans say, oh, okay, we've, we've got a hang of this World War II thing. Like, we got this. We're fighting a war on two separate oceans. Um, I think we can do this. And <laughs> We've leveled the Brits, up. It's fine. But the Brits are like, no, no, you don't understand. We understand the bigger picture. And the Americans are like, no, no, no. We are actually, like, fighting the bigger picture. Like, we are <laughs> currently coloring in the lines, the bigger picture. So we, we'll take it from here. <laughs> um, oh, and it's like, like the classic case of, like, Grandpa not being able to know when, like, when it's time to be done. Time to take a step back. Oh my, and you would think that like, okay, like, okay, it's happening. Like, all right, let's just go on board. But no, Churchill wasn't done. Oh no, he certainly wasn't done. <laughs> um, the British chiefs of staff, they're essentially like, all right, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll go along. And even uh, Henry Maitland Wilson, who was British, he was the Supreme Allied Commander of the Mediterranean. Essentially, he's like, okay, we'll... Uh, We'll go along with uh, Operation Anvil. It, it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> on August 4th, so the Allies established the D-Days. They're like, oh, yeah, August 15th, that sounds fine. And, you know, like I said earlier, on August 1st, they changed it from Anvil to Dragoon, like, for security reasons. Although, again, in my research, I've never found anything to suggest otherwise. But on August 4th, Churchill says... You know, we should switch the invasion from southern France to western France. It is the main and vital theater where dragoon forces can immediately play its part at close quarters. <laughs> and then he says, I cannot pretend to have worked out the details, but the opinion here is that they are capable of solution. <laughs> and so it's just like, guys, let's just go in charging blind and it'll work out, I promise. It'll, it'll be fine. I have faith. It's fine. And it would, <laughs> well, like, it's just the absurdity of his suggestion comes into focus even more when you realize, like, the Anvil invasion forces, Dragoon, were going to go from, like, Italy and Corsica and Sardinia, which is less than 100 miles from southern France where they were going to land in Marseille. He wanted to switch to Bordeaux on the west coast, which would have required the ships then going from, like, Corsica, west towards the Mediterranean, around France, around Spain, around Portugal, back up to the west. It would have considerably lengthened the amount of time it took to travel. It's fine, guys. I'm sure it'll work. It, it'll be fine. I, I have no idea how it'll work, but I'm confident it will work. 
It's the person who makes no plans, but like, N- we're, we're going to make it. It's going to be fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, and Eisenhower's just like, dude, no. Like, dude, stop. This is... <laughs> Eisenhower said, you know, I'm strongly opposed to a cancellation or major modification to Dragoon. A long delay in employing the Dragoon forces is quite unacceptable. And it is my firm opinion that the best interests of Overlord be served by carrying out the Dragoon operation as planned. He also noted his frustration in his diary. He was just like, God damn it, Churchill, stop (laughs) This operation is supposed to happen in 11 days, and you're still trying to get me to cancel it. His diary is just like a, tr- a picture of Churchill's face, and then he like scribbled all over the eyes. He's <laughs> like, X, X. No. Lots he of little, like, like, fuck this dude. And then like he, he draws hearts, and he just like draws little breaks in the middle, down the middle of the heart. <laughs> oh, no. He like rips the page in half. He's like, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> and then so like... Trust like, well, if Eisenhower won't listen, maybe FDR's personal aide will listen. His name was Harry Hopkins. I'm going to go straight to dad. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Secretary, like, dad secretary. Yeah, mm, mm, dad secretary, <laughs> yeah. I would say Hopkins is more like dad's he can't, best. He can't get to dad. Yeah, to you, get... It's like calling dad's best friend, like, hey, you think you could uh, convince dad to change this? <laughs> but then, like, Hopkins is like, dude, hell no. I'm like... And he says, like, it seems to me that our tactical position today in Overlord is precisely as planned and as we anticipated it would be when Anvil was laid on. To change strategy now would be a great mistake. And and so Churchill's like, oh, okay, fine. Awkward. I'll just go back to Eisenhower and uh, try and convince him again. And so on on August 9th, Six days before the operation happens, Churchill visits Eisenhower. And as um Churchill or as Eisenhower's aide says, the Prime Minister unloosed on Ike all his art of persuasion. Churchill begins weeping in this meeting, trying to convince Eisenhower to stop. Aww. And he at one point threatened to Lay down the mantle of my high office. I'm going to quit. <laughs> he if was going to resign. If we don't do it my way, I quit. It's <laughs> over. It was, it's, you know, it's just like one of those really big fights. Like, you know, the boyfriend's like, do you love me? And the girlfriend's like, of course I still love you. He's like, I don't know if you love me. I don't know if I can be in this relationship anymore. Right, you know, the sort of Damocles <laughs> hanging overhead, you know. It reminds but, me of like being a child and being like, "So we're gonna play this game, but if everyone doesn't play it exactly as I tell you to, I'm done and the game's over." Yeah, no shit. <laughs> and so... I'm, I'm taking all of the cards with me. We're done. Mm-hmm. No one can have fun. Yeah. So. <laughs> and so, Eisenhower writes to Churchill two days later on August 11th. He says, to say I was disturbed by our conference on Wednesday does not nearly express the depth of my distress over your interpretation of the recent decision affecting the Mediterranean theater. So he's like, dude, I don't know what you're smoking, but you freaked me out the other day. And, you know, these plans, we have to go on vacation in six days, all of a sudden to switch to I don't know, from Cabo. Now we're going to the Bahamas. 
Do you understand that I'm having stress dreams about this? I can't stop thinking about it. You're ruining my whole week. I was supposed to be having fun with the kids. Now it's all ruined. And and it's like Churchill called the other five people who were going on the vacation and said, like, can you try and convince Eisenhower not to go on this vacation? Like, let's go somewhere else. Come on, please, for the love of God. We have to change these plans in five days, even though we made them nine months in advance. I don't know how we're going to do it, but I'm confident we can. Um, but everyone still said, like, no. And actually, Churchill, I mean, Churchill, Eisenhower, at one point, he said, well, like, I have no problem actually canceling Anvil if... Anvil slash Dragoon. If uh, it was done for, like, military and not political reasons, like, yeah, if the military situation dictated that we shouldn't go ahead with this operation, I'd be more than willing to, uh, you know, amend the course. However, you're arguing about going into the Balkans. You're arguing about this. You're arguing about that. Like, none of that affects me. I have my orders and my mission, and I believe this is the best way to complete my mission. And so until I'm directly ordered by the president of the United States who has my back not to do this, I'm going to do it. So the end. So finally, that's Churchill finally gave up after that. And in fact, he was like, he was like essentially what he said, it was like, well, fine. If it's, uh, if uh, we have to do this, then I'm going to be the number one cheerleader. And so actually what he did is he took a ship to southern France and watch the invasion take place from a ship. That's so extra. <laughs> Pretty much. And so, uh, as it happened, Operation Dragoon happened on August 15th, 1944. And 94,000 troops were landed on the first day. 150,000 were on shore by, after three days. After the first day, they made it 20 miles. Um, their objectives were to capture the port cities of Marseille and Toulon. They were supposed to do it like D-Day plus 40, so 40 days after they landed. They did it in two weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. The um, German army that the Allies were fighting uh, completely was routed and out of France and on the Franco-German border by the end of September. Um, and so... Pretty much all the doom and gloom Churchill had was completely unfounded. Um, and it was the most successful amphibious operation that Allies conducted in the Western Front or in the European Theater of Operations in World War II by far. You know, they didn't exactly get all their objectives. They wanted to try and capture this one German army, the 19th Army at Montelimar, which plug is the subject of my dissertation. But... <laughs> You know, it didn't happen, but they still severely beat down that army. And so it was a huge success. And importantly for Eisenhower's armies, the overlord armies, which by this time had broken out of the Hedro country and were pursuing German forces across France to the German border, Franco-German border, opened up two ports. And Marseille would end up being the second biggest Allied port in use after Antwerp, supplying the Allies with fully 25% of the supplies they needed. Um, in the final drive for the push into Germany. Um, and so, yeah, that's essentially the story of the biggest disagreement between the British and the Americans during World War II and the story of an operation that no one really talks or thinks about because everyone focuses on 
D-Day and the invasion through northwest France rather than this, pretty frankly, quite fascinating operation that went through southern France. So before uh, before we kind of sum up or anything, I have a question. Did uh, did Churchill ever backtrack? Did he ever say, like, oh, I was totally in for that all the time. You know I love this invasion. Best idea <laughs> I ever had. So, no, he essentially doubled down on his position. Oh, so interesting. He famously wrote, you know, a six-volume history of World War II. Um that was released between like 1949 and 1953, 1955. He says, you know, history will be kind to me for I intend to be one of its authors. Um, Smart. Yeah. Well, in, um, and so uh, you can check this out. It's called in command of history and it's by David Reynolds. And it's essentially the history of Winston Churchill writing his history about world war two. It's an amazing, it's a great book. It's, it's one of the most original works of history I've ever read. Hmm. Um, it's really, really well done. Um, but essentially, Churchill was trying to, he was anachronistically applying his arguments to Anvil Dragoon to the current events happening in the immediate post-war aftermath. So like, you know, the Cold War starts after the end of the war and, like, oh no, the Soviets are everywhere. Communism is going to spread. The Iron Curtain has befallen over Europe. He's like, I knew. Essentially, that's what he argued. He said, like, well, I said if we didn't have Anvil and instead we went into Yugoslavia and the Balkans, we would have prevented Stalin from getting there and then he wouldn't have, uh, you know, spread communism there. You guys heard me say that, right? You, you know I said that. But at the same time, that then completely you know, negates all his the other potential positions. Like, it relegates to, or eliminates all the other options available or what actually happened. So, like, there was the Battle of the Bulge in December 1944. Because the Dragoon forces were in on, essentially, Eisenhower's right flank, if they hadn't been there or had been there in reduced numbers... The Allies would have had a far harder time getting into Germany in the spring of '45 than they did, and there's the possibility that the Russians could have occupied all of Germany coming from the east instead of where they ended up on whatever demarcation line they settled on, on Germany. Um, but essentially, Churchill, A, wrote that history to defend his viewpoints of that he had at the time, A, I believe that Anvil was a terrible idea. And it also helped that he had access to like the personal files, like government files that were still classified. He made a deal with the British government that's like, hey, let me have access to some of these files so I can publish them. So essentially, it's the first major history of the war that came out was his six-volume history. And He's it like, made what if I just write the tell-all? I'm just going to expose all the secrets. It's like, it's mm-hmm. like me waiting for like a Duggar to finally tell us what the heck is going on with that family? I'm waiting for that tell-all. He was like, no, no, I'm, I'll am i expose this war. I'll be the first one to do it. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> exactly. And, you know, Hitler couldn't write it because he was dead. Stalin wasn't writing it because he was his enemy. FDR couldn't write it because he was dead. And so, you know. Truman rolls up and he's like, what? Yeah. Huh? We have what a bomb program? Wait, we, we have new 
nuclear weapons. What 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 does it do? Somebody somebody go through it with me again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Truman wasn't privy to any of this, and so Churchill's uh, release of the volumes pertaining to Anvil Dragoon debate are essentially the predominating narrative. Um, you had others like Eisenhower released his uh, memoir Crusading Europe in 1948, and he says, you know, I believe that no operation assisted us more in the final defeat of the enemy than the operation from southern France. You know, and he, of course, Eisenhower's a war hero and becomes president in 1952. Um, but, you know, Churchill is the guy. And so because he's the guy and he wrote this massive six-volume history. I mean, the like amount a, of times that Churchill has been voted, like, most influential person of the 20th century, you, you know, you can't really mistake him for being pretty important at the time, even if he's probably not the most influential person of the 20th century. Yeah, he... um. <laughs> You know, the dude lived to 90. He wrote, uh, like, he wrote all the histories. Um, you know, prime minister twice. He was involved in so many of the greatest, you know, events of the of the century. Uh, also, flaming racist. <laughs> flaming racist. Um, ah, you know, if he's like, it's the 40s and 50s, like, you know. <laughs> and the teens and 20s and 30s <laughs> yes, just all the years he's like you can't teach an old dog new tricks and i'm like oh okay only you knew old man <laughs> so that that actually his doubling down and backing up in his memoir served as one of the predominating narratives around anvil dragoon and i think i would argue um contributes to the lack of attention the operation receives to this day it's also historians have strangely have noticed uh, this trend i should write something about this like an article on like the memory of anvil dragoon um well i yeah so um, essentially american historians pretty much back up the american point of view that like oh no this is a, a great operation that went really well and like aided us magnificently and british historians have typically been like oh no this was a huge mistake i've made a huge mistake <laughs> and, and, right like, and so and it's followed through the historiography up through the present um and it's so it's really fascinating to watch like this kind of nationalism like poke through the historiography in terms of this debate and whether or not Anvil Dragoon was a successful or necessary operation. Funnily enough, I fall on the side of the Americans being one myself. So like in some ways I feel like I'm just continuing a part of the problem. Like I feel mm. it was an absolutely adequate, necessary and justifiable operation. Um, and you know, whoever disagrees with me, I can fight to the death. See, now that I've been educated on it by you, I'm going to share the same opinion. So somebody needs to jump in here with the opposing view. Yeah, and um, we need to get like fight on this podcast. Let's just get <laughs> yeah. it going. Let's get it going, guys. <laughs> to the Thunderdome. <laughs> so that would be the uh, saddest, nerdiest fight of all time. <laughs> maybe with that attitude. <laughs> Yo, I got weapon. I'll, I'll fight dirty. I'll make it. I'll make it worth the entry fee. <laughs> So yeah, uh, so yeah, that's uh, Churchill definitely didn't back down from his wartime position. Well, I love that. That was a great story and something I knew genuinely nothing about. Um, mm -hmm. So before I let you go, Cameron, why don't you let us know how people can follow you? 
Sure. So I'm. He's got the wine screen. bottle in his hand, like I just shocked him. <laughs> he was ready uh, to do something, and now he's like, "Oh, I, I gotta keep talking." <laughs> oh, oh no, oh no, <laughs> I've been, I've been outed. <laughs> we, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at cgzensu, or c g z i n s o u. All right, guys. So that was my episode with Cameron. Um, I made sure that he, in our conversation, told you how to follow him. Um, Absolutely feel free to follow him on Twitter. I certainly am. That's actually how um, we started chatting about uh, doing a podcast episode together, and it was a lot of fun. Obviously, as you heard, uh, we certainly enjoyed this, and I really enjoyed the chance to learn about something that I genuinely knew nothing about. Um, as usual, if you want to follow the show, you can find me on several different platforms. Um, my Twitter is at Happy History Pod. My Instagram is at Happy Hour History Pod. Facebook, Happy Hour History Podcast. And uh, my Gmail is Happy Hour History Pod at gmail.com. If uh, you are also a student, whether it's kind of PhD candidate, master's student, um, you know, just kind of bachelor student like I am, and you are interested in doing um, a guest hosting episode, feel free to let me know. Um, this is obviously how this episode came about in the first place, and we had such a good time, so I am really keen to get other people um, kind of active in the historical field to be part of this. Um, it's sort of like drunk history for people that aren't getting on drunk history. Um, my kind of criteria for like meeting the requirements of getting on this show are considerably lower. I'm um, so happy to have people on. If that's something that you are interested in, you can just hit me up on one of those uh, platforms. Also, if you just want to uh, let me know if you enjoyed slash hated this episode um, as a listener, feel free to contact. If you have ideas on things that we should cover in future, happy to take those as well. Last but not least, um, if you could please rate and review this show, it is really important um, in terms of getting this out there to other listeners. So I'm very happy to um, get any ratings and reviews. Um, Obviously, you can just kind of give a quick star review if you're in a rush, if you have a bit more time and could leave even just like three words being like, this sucks, this is amazing, I don't know, two or three words. Um, You can leave something more heartfelt if you like. I'm always happy to see what people think about the show, and it does help me to know kind of what uh, I can do better in the future. So feel free to leave a review, contact me on my social media platforms, go follow Cameron. Um, I'm sure there'll be more ridiculousness in the future. We're already hoping to do another episode. Um, So there is lots to look forward to in the future and um i hope to see you all for the next episode and um, i think those ones are going to be good i've recorded several episodes that are in my arsenal um i'm not sure exactly what's going out next but uh we have some funny things coming down the pike um so make sure you're subscribed to the show and i will talk to you guys next time bye